This little light of mine. Welcome to This Little Light of Mine, the podcast where we explore what happens when you teach a child that they are not allowed to love. Here's your host, James Powell. Hello and welcome to episode 15 of This Little Light of Mine. My name is James Powell and I'm so glad that you're able to join me for today's episode, Purity Shame. If you've been following along with us on Facebook and on Instagram at My Light Shines Bright, you'll know that we've just completed a huge summer where we've been focusing on meeting, reclaiming, and championing our inner child. It was incredibly rewarding to meet so many of your inner children and to have the opportunity to feature so many of your pictures along with your powerful words of hope and strength with the entire community. As we transition into fall across this part of the world, we're starting to read cast by Isabel Wilkerson. My friend Oprah was over for dinner the other night and she casually mentioned that cast is her most important book club selection ever. Okay, well, maybe I was eating pizza while watching Oprah on Apple TV Plus, but whatever. With that kind of claim, I downloaded a copy immediately and I haven't been able to put the book down. I'm shocked at how much of our own North American history that I had absolutely no idea about. What I'm now learning was definitely not taught in any of the history books in my school. I'm devastated as I learn more about how we got to where we are today by intentionally creating a system in society to abuse, oppress, and murder so many fellow humans. As I start to read cast, it's another powerful reminder on how important our voices and our stories are. If we want to heal, grow, and evolve, we need to tell our stories, especially the painful ones. I invite you to join in on nightly Facebook and Instagram posts where I'm going to be confronting my own white privilege and engaging in a dialogue with the intention to learn, grow, heal, and bring more love into our world. The past few weeks have been challenging ones for me as I work through the many ups and downs, curveballs, and timeouts that are part of my recovery journey. As I learn to navigate this new and very uncomfortable world, I want to extend some thanks to the incredible humans that have taken the risk to open up and to share some of their vulnerability, their strength, their love, and their hope with me. Chris and the gang of other brave humans at St. Mike's Addiction Recovery Program, your presence, support, and sharing are incredible examples of what happens when you reach out and ask for help. Thank you. June Love Young at Beloved Arise, I am blown away at what you're creating and the passion that you have for creating a movement that fights for the lives of queer youth of faith. Thank you so much for your vision and for your new friendship. It is organizations like Beloved Arise that give me and my 12-year-old inner child hope for a very bright future. And if you haven't already, please visit BelovedArise.org and check out the amazing resources they have for queer youth of faith, their parents, and their pastors. Next, Rachel Roberts at American Nun. Thank you for helping us tear down the man-made walls that we've created between religions. Your vision of a future where love is greater than labels is one that deeply resonates with me. We are so much bigger than the boxes that we put ourselves into. And so is God. And finally, my best friend Brent. I know my journey this past year hasn't been easy on you or on our friendship, but I want to thank you so very much 
for being such an important part of my recovery and for speaking your powerful words of love and truth to remind me of who I really am and how far I've come. Thank you for seeing me. I love you. In today's episode, called Purity Shame, I'm going to share what it was like growing up in the 90s evangelical church culture and share about one of my worst nightmares coming to life. And from the many stories, comments, and messages that you've been sharing online through Facebook and Instagram, it is very clear that this period was not easy, joy-filled, or shame-free for many of us. No matter where you may have lived, on the spectrum of gender or orientation. And with that, here's today's story episode, Purity Shame. The transition from grade school to secondary school was particularly challenging for me. The boys that I used to connect with and call my friends, they'd mostly slipped away. The playful, boyish games of truth or dare were now taboo, completely off the table, and totally gay. And in many of the boys' minds, so was I. Or at least that was the thought that I anxiously played over and over in a constant, never-ending loop inside my mind. Kids are natural detectors for sniffing out the other. Once they identify them, they gather others to target, bully, and ostracize. In a carnal way, this behavior unites them, and it gives them a common purpose in targeting someone who doesn't fit the norm. The words flamer, faggot, homo, gay, sissy, screamer, and fairy. Those words became the bullets that were loaded into the automatic weapons carried by the kids that I went to school with, some of the kids in my youth group, and by many of the adults in my world. Each time I would hear those words, I would jump on the inside as they shot deep into my soul. I was bleeding out on the inside, but outside, I'd force a smile and pretend, hey, I'm in on the joke, instead of being the joke. And it pains me to admit, but I would also participate in this reign of terror and pass the hate along to the weaker, more effeminate guys. Anything to shift the painful focus away from me. Those words would pierce my soul and would destroy any sense of self-esteem that I may have had. Those words hunted me down in the schoolyard, in the hallways, in the classrooms, on my way home, and sometimes even at church. And I have no idea who made up that stupid rhyme. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. There is no truth in that. But what was even more hurtful is when I would hear these words and jokes and comments from my teachers, my youth group leaders, and family members. How does Jeff know? What did I do to show them that I'm one of those horrible words? How can I stop doing it right now? Did they follow me downtown? How do I get them to be quiet? They must have followed me. Why won't they stop? I can't let these words and taunts get back to my parents. Someone must have seen me. They definitely saw me. How can I all just get this to go away? Why don't they shut up? I would be going insane inside my head. I was trying to control everything, but I couldn't. 
And these were the days when LGBTQ shaming was accepted and culturally approved. Saturday Night Live had their she-he character, Pat. The word transgender, that was decades away from being commonly used. There was also SNL's overly sensitive, effeminate, and lispy Stuart Smalley and his daily affirmations. And let's not forget In Living Color and their flamboyant duo, Men on Film. Two snaps, a twist, and a kiss. Week after week, those comic sketches sent a message that it was okay to taunt, to laugh, and to shame LGBTQ people. As I would watch along with friends and family, we'd all laugh. But I knew everyone was laughing at me. Now, I never really talked about this, but at school, I was bullied regularly. And my stomach would tense each time I would round the hallway corner in high school. I would know that if Terry, Toby, or Frank, and no, don't worry, those aren't their real names. If I turned the corner and they were there, I was going to be mocked, shoved, or humiliated. Teachers didn't care about this kind of bullying back then. And it's not like I was ever going to admit to anyone that I was the target of these kids' names. These feelings of terror run so deep that even 25 years later, I still feel them come up when walking into an unfamiliar room. In a very strange way, though, the space where I felt like I could be most myself during my early secondary school years was that church youth group. Even though I couldn't be fully myself, I found a way to love church youth group. I felt like I was finally belonging somewhere. The older kids accepted me. They invited me to come along with them after church to weekend events, and they were a safe haven during lunchtime in high school. In a way, for the first time, I felt like I had a social life. With my youth group friends, I started to perfect my eager, happy Christian with the perfect smile role. In that role, I was agreeable, polite, and helpful. In that role, I skillfully learned to exile my fear, my playfulness, my sexuality, my doubt, my sensitivity, my creativity, my adventurousness, and my opinions. Life was great, and I had the perfect smile. And I could almost lie to myself that I belonged and I fit in. Almost. The love of our youth group was put to the test during my junior year of high school. I felt like I was coming down with a cold, and I was looking forward to staying home from evening church service so that I could rest and relax before Monday. That idea was abruptly killed when my parents announced that evening youth service was mandatory for both me and my sister. When I tried pleading with my parents, they sternly told me that I absolutely must be there and that I would understand later why. Uh-oh. What did they mean about this? Is this about me? Did someone at church find out? Is this going to be an intervention? My parents wouldn't really do this publicly, would they? Am I going to be exposed in front of everyone? Should I run? If I run, I'm going to be in even more trouble. 
I dread the surprises. I always needed to know what was going on, what to expect, and what was expected of me. But this situation was throwing me through a loop, and I started to get nervous. The voices in my head went into double time, and I realized I had no time to make a plan. I had to go. This was me facing the music. My parents drove my sister and me to church, and I slowly shuffled inside and sat in the pew, waiting for whatever was coming for me. I remember trying to make small talk with other friends, but I could feel my panic and anxiety escaping from every pore of my body, and I just knew that everyone else could sense that. I knew that everyone else was in on what was going to happen to me. And I could tell by looking at them, they were all thinking, poor guy, we really like him, but he brought this on himself. As the service started, I could taste the tension in the room. Something was very wrong. And then one of our leaders got up and started off with, before we get into our lesson tonight, we have a very delicate conversation that we want to have with you. And on hearing those words, I died inside. I could feel the heat in my chest and my face skyrocket as my stomach twisted in knots. This was my end, and in seconds, everyone is going to know about my sin. They're going to know that I'm a fraud, a fake, a liar, a traitor. They're going to know that I'm gay, and there's nothing I can do about that. Our youth group leader continued the conversation by saying something like, We need to come together to support each other, and even though we do not support these actions, we need to continue to love the individual. My heart was exploding, and I could feel all eyes boring into the back of my head. I could feel the tears welling up in my eyes. But I knew I had to hold everything together. I couldn't let anyone see my fear. I couldn't let any of my emotions be seen. Because I knew they would betray me. They would show my guilt instantly. And to this day, I can still feel the panic and the churning in my stomach as time slowed down and everything went into slow motion. My sister looked over at me with fear in her eyes. And I knew this was my worst nightmare actually coming true. And then I heard our youth leader's words. And it felt like an eternity for me to choose how to outwardly display the violently shifting thoughts and emotions going on inside of me. I wanted to run. I wanted to leave. I wanted to get out of there immediately. But the only thing my body could do was to lean forward, elbows on my knees, and cover my face with my hands. And our youth leader spoke. We've been speaking with the Townsend family this week, and they have let us know that Tammy is pregnant. Instantly, I felt a wave of relief as I realized that I had received another stay of execution. I could hear a murmur spread across the sanctuary 
and I'm relieved that these whispered voices are not about me. I'm still stunned as the tension in my body drains, and then I realize, oh no, I need to kick into normal caring Christian role and say something about Tammy to the person next to me. Poor Tammy, this must be so hard for her. It's hard to see others fall like this. And our youth group leader went on about how our community has to surround Tammy with support, but this is overlaid with the clear message that her behavior is not something that is condoned in any way. The Bible tells us not to gossip, and we need to embrace the sinner, but hate the sin. He continued by helping us to see that in supporting Tammy, we are not approving of her actions, but we are approving her as a person. We are reminded of God's perfect plan between a man and a woman after marriage. We need to love Tammy like we would love anyone else. Tammy and her family have come together and we have prayed, asking for forgiveness. And that's the beauty of God's love. When we ask for forgiveness, it's given. Our God is a God of second chances and we can be pure again. As I continued sitting in that pew, waiting for whatever is going to come next, the thoughts of purity being washed as white as snow, being cleansed in the blood, and forgiveness for my sins started to shift through my head. But as our youth leader continues to address the situation and outline our plan of support, I start to realize something even more disturbing. What if this night had actually been about me. I wouldn't receive this support. I can't pray for my sin to be forgiven. I can't give birth to my sin and then have it go away. I am the sin. And as I processed everything, a new level of shame sank deep into my bones. I can't separate me from my feelings. I've tried everything, but my feelings are my feelings. My feelings are my identity. My beingness is my sin. I sat there, confused, sad, lonely, and broken. But the one thought running through my head above all else? Thank you, God. I'm glad I'm not Tammy. Judging from the deluge of messages I've received over the past couple weeks, I can see that I was not alone in the shame-filled messages that I received over my sexuality from the church. Purity balls, chewed up gum, purity pledges, destroyed for life, purity rings, oh my. Matt in Toronto said, I was frozen in terror. I thought I would be single forever. Corey in Seattle says, I was taught that sex was wrong and dirty until the wedding day and only a straight wedding. Nick in British West Indies said, it was something dirty and it was something not to be talked about. And Ian in Montreal, he said that he had to learn everything for himself. We didn't talk about that. 
The 90s evangelical purity culture was an organized strategy started by U.S. conservative groups to convince young people that the Bible requires a severe abstinence code. In response to the HIV-AIDS crisis of the 80s, comprehensive sex education was being introduced to more and more schools across America, which makes sense. But this angered many conservatives and evangelical lobby groups, like Moral Majority, who then kicked into high gear and out popped a full-blown and partially federally funded purity panic. B in the United States remembers, I never finished college because I was taught that my role was to be married with babies. Vicky Ann in the UK said, I was taught nothing. My parents left me to figure everything out on my own. And my church told me everything was a sin if I wasn't married. Barb in Atlanta said, any type of sexual thoughts or activity before marriage would make me unsuitable to be married. I was also told that all good Christian men would know if I was broken or not. And Stephanie in Toronto said, you're going to hell if you don't follow the Bible and don't have sex. If you do, don't use a condom because that would be stopping God's plan. All of this sexual shame and more was neatly wrapped up in a well-decorated box branded with true love weights. Seemingly sweet father-daughter dances, purity pledges and celebrations, and like all well-designed movements, we can't forget the visual symbolism, enter the purity ring. And to top things off, all good movements have to have an enemy, so cue the introduction and the amplification of slut-shaming. If you weren't pure, you most obviously would have to be a slut. Movements like True Love Waits taught a generation of young people that purity not only meant being sexually abstinent, but also free from sexual or lustful thoughts. Yeah, even thinking about sex was taught to be a sin. Wading a little deeper into purity culture, it taught women that in order to remain pure, they were to remain under the authority of their fathers until that authority was transferred over to their husbands. Women were even taught that it was their responsibility not to tempt the boys and the men around them. Yeah, you heard me right. It was taught that the role of women was to keep the men from lusting. Good luck with that one, ladies. Purity culture and all that went along with it wasn't just something that was relegated to some extreme Christian fringe church in the Deep South either. Evangelical leaders did their homework, and they knew that they needed to infuse purity culture into mainstream culture. And guess what? They did a fantastic job. Britney Spears, the Jonas Brothers, Selena Gomez, Miley Cyrus, Jordan Sparks, remember her? Jessica Simpson, Demi Lovato, Hilary Duff, and many others proudly wore their purity rings or promise rings on stage, at public appearances, and on the red carpet. And in hindsight, I'm not sure how many of those rings stayed on when the cameras were switched off. It's so odd to think back to the terror, the pain, and the paranoia that I lived through at this age as I tried to pray away my gay and I hated the hidden parts of me, and to now realize that so many others all around me were torturing themselves in similar ways. I wasn't the only angst-ridden kid in church on Sundays. It ends up 
I was in really good company. Hearing how my straight male counterparts would beat themselves up for thinking lustful thoughts, or how they believed that they had deceived and angered God for having a wet dream, or worse, giving in to the devil's temptation and masturbating. Or hearing stories of females who were convinced that they had ruined themselves and their chance at ever finding a husband because of a perceived sexual sin. A couple of women shared a chewing gum analogy where a chewed piece of gum was passed around at a youth group event and that they were told if they failed to uphold their purity that they would appear like a chewed up piece of gum to godly men who were looking for a wife, reinforcing the myth that sexual purity is the most godly value that a woman can ever provide to a man. And hey, I'll give them bonus points because that's some serious and effective symbolism, but it also hurt a lot of people. The common thread that I find most damaging in all of our experiences is the narrative that our spiritual relationship with each other and with God lives on some binary pass or fail plane. You're either pure or you're a slut. You're male or you're female. You're gay or you're straight. You're black or you're white. You're a saint or you're a sinner. And as I continue on this journey and discover more about myself and more about God, I see how small this thinking is. God isn't binary. God isn't a one or a zero. God isn't a he or a she. God doesn't view us as being pure or being slutty. This in versus out thinking is an invention of man. Binary thinking is based on a need for control and certainty in an attempt to hold on to power. And as we learned in our inner child work this summer, this type of synthetic thinking called polarized thinking, it's a trauma response from someone that is scared and someone that is looking for ways to keep themselves safe. Does this sound like God to you? Do you think God's having a trauma response? I don't. God is love, and love transcends this binary plane. As I dig into my fundamentalist roots and beliefs, the more I'm starting to see how man has been twisting the notion of God and has been injecting false promises of certainty to attract others into their pews. God doesn't fit into any of our man-made boxes. God isn't male or female. God isn't black or white. And to my friends down south, I hate to burst your bubble, but God isn't blue or red either. God is in the uncertainty, the wonder, joy, pain, experience, stillness, and the mystery and a million other things that we can't even begin to imagine. And as Brenda Marie Davies, one of my favorite faith-affirming and sex-positive podcasters says, God is gray. And it is in this space where we find love, life, heaven, and God. Let's be here. Right now. Right now. I'm looking forward to our next episode with my friend Chad Rollo as he shares some of his deconstruction journey. I learned a lot of my conversation with Chad as he talked about the importance of diversity and inclusion on the path of deconstructing your faith and reconstructing 
or remembering your faith so that it includes the full expression of your sexuality. And before we go, I want to give a shout out and a congratulations to Rebel Heart Freak for her comment on Instagram TV on our Gospel Gaslighting episode. She said, This is really powerful. I resonate so much with everything you spoke about here. Thank you for sharing your experience. I'm still recovering from gaslighting, from my religious upbringing, and from past relationships. Thank you so much for what you are doing here. Thank you, Rebel Heart Freak, for all of your encouragement. And I hope that Colby Martin's new book, The Shift, will help you continue forward on your journey. Send me a DM on Instagram and I can get your winning copy of Colby Martin's The Shift and send it off to you at home. And finally, I want to thank you for being here with us today. And before I go, I want to remind you, your sexuality is a gift from God. Learn how to celebrate this gift. Talk openly about it and use it to bring more love and intimacy into our world. You were designed with a powerful voice no matter who you are. We need to hear what you have to say. You matter. You are needed. You are wanted. And you are loved. Thanks for listening to this little light of mine. To learn more about our guests today and for links from our show, visit www.thislittlelightofmine.ca. If you enjoyed this episode or feel that it could bring love and acceptance into someone else's life, please like, rate, review, and share so that we can build our community and bring more love into the world for all people. Thank you for sharing your time and listening to our stories today. And we would love to hear your story too. Visit the Get Involved section of thislittlelightofmine.ca to share your voice. We love being in community with you and look forward to sharing more with you next time. Now go and let your light shine bright because you are loved.